Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a It's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Welcome to a Super Bloom podcast. My name is Candace King. I want to jump right into my conversation today with comedian Liz Glazer. If you've not heard of Liz Glazer, oh man, are you just going to have some big feelings by the end of this episode? Liz Glazer is a comedian from the New Jersey, New York City area, and she's been celebrating her 10th year of stand-up comedy with her debut comedy LP, which has been out since May 12th. It is called A Very Particular Experience, which is about grief stillbirth and inherited trauma. It's incredibly heartfelt, vulnerable, and, and miraculously hilarious all at once. I, I believe that this episode really speaks for itself. I started our conversation not really knowing how this was all going to come together and connect. And it, this is just one of those beautiful conversations that really, really, really left an imprint and an impact on my heart and made me so happy to have the opportunity to sit down with people who I would never have conversations with and be impacted by, you know, their experiences and, um, and have just, you know, a shared understanding of the ability to receive someone's vulnerability and have a feeling like I'm walking away from a conversation with a more enlightened perspective on life. And, um, and, you know, connect with someone that otherwise I would have never connected with. So, you know, I, I hope that, uh, Maybe you'll feel that way too. 
So without further ado, here's my conversation with Liz Glazer. Holding the microphone and it's so heavy yeah. and I'm just like melting into the bottom right. of this. <laughs> I'm just trying because you said that that was from your experience recording in a closet. And mm-hmm. I was like, oh, I wonder if there's a metaphor for like being in the closet. <laughs> like, <laughs> yes, I'm sure there that is. was the time when I was holding my microphone and I... <laughs> Couldn't get anything recorded for the life of me. And it was all so awkward. So listen, Candace, I get it. You get it, Liz. I, I mean, totally look, get to it. be honest, I'm still in the closet. I'm just decorating and distracting yep. it with this ha! flower wall. I'm it's sure there's a metaphor beautiful. there. Thank you. <laughs> yes. It's very hot in here and sweaty. Sure. Oh, yeah. And like, so I'm sure there's a metaphor there, too. Just all yeah. the in the closet yeah. metaphors. I mean, here's the thing is like the part about... Like, I, I, I'm i a gay woman. I'm great to be out of the closet. I love my wife. I'm very proud of being gay. And also, there's such a piece of gay shame that I'm sometimes nostalgic for. Like, this is something that I've talked about in couples therapy with my wife because, like, I... And I, and I don't think it's necessarily about being gay. So, like, I'm I'm saying this as a person who's been in the closet and as an experience of gayness for someone my age, I guess, I'm 44. I imagine that that has something to do with it. When I was growing up, being gay was associated with AIDS. I remember when I was a kid that there were like all these commercials on television about, listen, if you're gay, you have AIDS, which is like extremely problematic and homophobic and all that. And untrue. But at the time, my thought as like an anxious child who knew that I was gay was I was like, okay, I guess I have AIDS. And they said on the on the commercials, they're like, and you should tell people. (laughs) And so I was like, I was literally 12 years old. And I was like, like it's not funny, but just like the thought process of a child. <laughs> no, I know. So pure, being like, right. Well, the TV well, said it, so I guess this is how it works. Yeah, <laughs> right. And and so, but there was so much of like, you're never gonna find. Like, there was never anything like we know today relating to like happiness and like you know finding a path to having a life and getting a house in a suburb and having a child and all these things like I have a joke that I say on stage that it's like first of all everyone's gay now and it's like being gay is nothing like being gay used to be the only mildly cool (laughs) thing about me and now it's it's ripped, you know, and I'm like, I I'm and now because now everybody's binary. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And pan and whatever. <laughs> right. Right. Which is beautiful. It's like it's everything I wish existed when I was growing up, but it didn't like I'm just a lesbian and I'm such just a lesbian that it makes me feel like I'm straight. And like when I look at my life now, I'm like, yeah, it's it's pretty straight. But it's like the shame piece in the closet is such a real thing that sometimes like in the moments that I can't believe my life, I'm like, in a way, and 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 I this may sound weird, but I'm just going to say it. Like in a way, the sexiest thing my wife could ever say to me, and I really hope she doesn't, <laughs> but like in a way, the sexiest thing my wife could ever say to me is I'm leaving you for my ex-boyfriend. <laughs> 
Does that make sense? Walk me through it a little bit. Walk me through it. Because, yeah. Well, I used to I used to have a joke. Like, one of the first jokes that I ever wrote was that my type is a straight girl looking for a reason to break up oh, with her okay. boyfriend. Yeah, yeah, I get which it. Which is, I get it. it's, it's a little uh-huh. wordy. And it also does not apply to my wife specifically. It applies to, like, you know, women who I had dated in the past. And, like, I had dated straight women. And with dating straight women, there's, like, this kind of weird, like, Feeling like I felt simultaneously like so powerful and not Mm -hmm. powerful at all, you know, because there's a fetishizing, which I imagine is relatable for all kinds of people, right? Like somebody could, you know, put someone else on a pedestal for whatever reason. And that's exciting Mm -hmm. in a way. But it's also like, I mean, setting aside the objectification and whatever could be problematic in in that way, there's also like, you know, I don't know how to feel like I'm so powerful that I made this woman attracted to me. And again, I'm not talking about my wife. Like, that's the thing is like my my relationship with my wife is like we met, we were, you know, with other people, like not at the time we met, but like just coming off of things. And my wife's divorced from a woman. She had been gay before and whatever. And I had come out of relationships with women at the time, like a few in a row. And then we met each other and we met when we were in our late thirties, which I think was helpful because we knew what we wanted and it was like very easy. Right. But it was everything that I never thought would happen as someone who from such an early age got this message of like being gay is wrong and bad you should stay in the closet, you know, and be holding up your microphone, mm-hmm. you know, all of the closet associated like disabilities or whatever, like like just ways that you're in the negative and and deal with it. And then to be in a situation as I am now, very gratefully and so thankfully, where it's like, oh, this is better than anything I literally ever thought would happen as someone who I mean, I got Holocaust in my background. I'm an anxious person. Like, to think that I live any second not waiting, God forbid, for another shoe to drop, like, that's my whole life. I I cannot believe how lucky I am, and I have to read self-help books on a daily basis, okay? And I listen to them so that they get into my brain more effectively, but, like, anything to help me not stay in that yeah yeah no, it 100 Does that makes, makes sense 100 makes sense i also think there's something to yeah. say about like the 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 sexual interest of like a chase regardless of yeah. gender or sexuality totally like when you've gotten into like a like a pat or like a even just a personal pattern of like wanting right. that chase i feel like that's so easy especially when you're younger but yeah. i also so do you how long were you in I the mean, closet i knew i was gay from i don't know when i was like six or seven i want to say and i really did get a lot of messaging from like school and my parents, which was notable because I went to Orthodox Jewish day school, but my parents weren't as observant at home as school Mm -hmm. was. And so it was basically like I went to school to know what we were doing wrong at home. And so like school was like, you can't turn on lights on the Sabbath or you can't eat non-kosher. Meanwhile, we're driving to Rudy's Pizza to get pepperoni. You know what I mean? You're just like, so I, I was tab. used what to conflicting. 
<laughs> right. I and and I think the reason for it is like both of my parents, both sides are Holocaust wow. survivor grandparents. And because of that, I think like both of my parents were like felt a real responsibility to, as they said it, make sure that my brother and me knew who we were or who we are. And like, I think what they meant by that was just like, you know, have some Jewish identity that was strong. And for whatever reason, they felt that the school where we were sent was the best place. I would later learn that the conservative school, which is like a level down in observance, was doing renovations when my mom went on the tour. And so like they were having class in the hallway with a leak. Yeah. And she's like, I'm not spending because <laughs> these yeah. schools are not cheap. She's right. Like I'm not, you know, spending all this money for you to like learn in a hallway. So anyway, so there I am at the more religious school and they're telling us all this stuff. And then I go home and my parents are like, it's nonsense, which was in some ways confusing, although I do think that it provided a level of like, I don't know, just understanding that sometimes mm -hmm. rules are not absolute and sometimes like somebody can say something, but then you could have disagreement. And that's like, you know, that yeah. cognitive dissonance is part of life. So I don't know. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Yeah, no, I had that. My parents, I grew up in a Protestant church. Okay. Protestant? Christian? Yeah. One of those. It starts with a P. Yeah. I don't know. I'll remember, like, obviously, yeah. I'm in a church. Presbyterian? Presbyterian. Thank you. My it was? Catholic. Oh, my God. I yes. can't believe I got that. <laughs> 
Thank you. I grew up in a Presbyterian church. And but I would go to like Bibles camp because that's like it was cool. You know, it's like we were tweens. You'd go to this camp with like all the hot guys from the church. You know what I mean? I was like, and we'd always like end the camp with like a food fight and whipped cream and shaving cream. I mean, just rage, you know, when you're just like 12 years old, you're like, this is so cool. But then I'd be there and everyone took it really seriously. And I and like my parents had their own relationship with religion. And I, you know, there was prayer. There was, you know, I there was an experience of it, but not like, you yeah. know, this is sin. And then this this is bad. This is good. Like, right. I never felt that at home. But I yeah. kind of feel that I'd go to like these church camps and they'd be like, so, yeah, I found Jesus. Did you find Jesus today? And I'd be like, wow. Oh, I'm going right. to try again later. <laughs> And then I'll He's, come back yeah. and and I'd like be there like, oh, do I say he like came out from behind the tree and be like, right. oh, it just it was a light that just was like you. <laughs> I'm like 12 years old, like panicked, you know, in a, in a training right. bra being like, how do I how do I tell people that I found Jesus? Do I lie? Do I am I bad? Am I bad at this? But it is interesting. He was in be, the closet, yeah, by the way. He was in the closet. <laughs> <laughs> the whole time I should have uh-huh. just looked there. Yes. Right. But it is interesting when you start to realize how much of an influence these like very, you yeah. know, impactful, like community driven, like religious places impact like how you then act socially throughout your life. And For especially sure. in those early de- developmental years. Yeah. Yeah. A hundred percent. Yeah. So like I... I definitely knew that sometimes like school and home conflicted, but I also had a very clear message that about gayness, my parents totally agreed with school, which was disappointing and scary depending on the moment, you know, because I was like, oh my God, I can't believe that I have this thing that they're like not going to be cool with. And I don't, I don't know that I specifically remember like from being a kid, a moment that I knew they weren't cool with it. Now that I say that, like, I remember one of my parents seeing like we we were like passing a gay person, like a very flamboyantly gay man. And I can't remember, but I'm pretty sure one of my parents said like, oh, well, gay men hate women. And that was like a thing that I imagine was messaging that they, yeah, like, okay, like, I don't think that that's true. It's certainly not true wholesale. Maybe that was something that happened to one of them. I don't know. But like, that comes to mind as I'm thinking of like, where could I have gotten the specific messaging that they were not cool with it? But, But I knew. I totally knew that they weren't cool with it. And so, yeah, so like that was confusing because there was agreement between school and home about how bad it was to be gay. And I guess like because of that, it's sometimes hard for me to like sit in happiness in my current life. When did you come out of the closet? 21 was when I really... Yeah, because basically, so my my brother's trans and initially came out when my brother was my brother was assigned female at birth. And so came out as a lesbian earlier when he before me, younger brother, but came out first. 
And my parents wanted to send my brother to conversion therapy, not like shock therapy, not that it's like necessarily better, but I just want to paint the picture so that my parents don't seem like monsters, which they're not. And I think all of this is just, I mean, I don't think it's great. And I certainly wouldn't want to repeat behavior like that. But like, I also like have fully come to a place where like, I get my parents, I get my brother, you know, I, my mom was like, really trying to get me on her side about sending my brother who had just come out as a lesbian to conversion therapy. And I was like, yeah, I don't agree with that. And I was really trying to keep it based on reasons, right? Like, just keep it in the logic, in the rationality, whatever. And so I remember we were, like, having this, like, fight. I was like, I don't think this is right. And she's like, it's it's better. No, it's not, whatever. And then finally I'm crying and I say I'm gay. And I remember I, remember I, see, I saw something that Ellen said, like, a hundred years ago when she was still nice and everyone thought she was nice. But like, whatever it was, it was a long time ago that she said basically that everybody who comes out, when they come out, they cry. And I don't know if there's like data on that, but like, at least for my situation, it totally checks out. And so I remember that I was hysterically crying with my mother in the car, telling her that I was gay as basically a reason not to send my brother to whatever kind of like therapy and conversion. Meanwhile, because that was the way, I then went to the conversion. So wait, what it entailed. Wait, how old were you? You were 20. Yeah. <gasps> 21. Yeah. 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 And because I was like, I mean, it was wow. really tough for me because like, I feel like as between my brother and me, I definitely had both the reputation in my family, but also kind of the constitution of being more of a parent pleaser. Well, and the oldest child. Like I was not to like make it, but, yeah, it, 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 but the right. oldest child. Yeah. 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 I think that must be true yeah. because yeah, it totally was. Are you, I'm an or, oldest are you child, oldest yeah. or yes. Yeah. So you have it too. Oh, yeah. Or oh, did, I, oh, I'm or whatever. Such a, not yeah. only just a parent, like I want them to be happy at all times, but I'm a people pleaser. Yeah. To, yes. Yeah. Same. 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 Yeah. Getting yeah. over it. <laughs> Working on it. Right. I mean, come on. So, yeah. So basically, because that was the route to coming out, I said to my mother, I said, OK, so I'll go to this thing that I was arguing against in the literal moment that I came out to you as gay. And so it wasn't I said before, it wasn't like shock therapy, which I feel mm -hmm. like is like often the first image that people have, which is why I say it wasn't that. And it also seems like a little more extreme. But what it was, was there was this organization called Jonah, which is Jews offering new alternatives to homosexuality. It just sounds like a Pretty sure they don't thing. exist anymore. I know. I know. It's, it's like saying, if you were writing exactly the script, it would be, it would be exactly that. <laughs> yeah. And let me tell you, like the person who was the rep in the town over from where we lived that was like happy to have us come over to her living room so was like the gayest woman I've ever seen in my life. Like gayer than gay. Like the only person more gay than this woman was someone I would meet 
years later when I was already teaching law and I was trying to get a job at a Jesuit university, okay? And I was like, like half the faculty were really into me, but because it was a Jesuit university, there was a little cadre of faculty members who were like, well, we are religious and she does have a paper called (laughs) sodomy and polygamy. And I was an academic. And so I literally, I wrote a paper that was called that, you know, for headlines. Like, of course, it was was about deeper ideas of law and whatever. I mean, listen, it got me published (laughs) in the Columbia Law Review. I don't regret it for a second. And so, so anyway, so this, like, one of the people on the faculty at this university was, like, opposing my candidacy, and she says to me, she's like, how do you perceive that your paper, Sodomy and Polygamy, jibes with what's written in the New Testament? And I I mean, I'm very proud of my answer, which was like, well, I don't really perceive myself to be an expert in the New <laughs> Testament, so I'm not sure that I know the answer to that. Anyway, long story short of that, I did not get the job, but she was like, maybe the second gayest woman I'd ever seen in my life, second only to this rep from Jonah, okay? (laughs) Right. And in both cases, it's like these people who couldn't look like tool belt, you know, like... Basically, she was a Subaru, like like a spirit Halloween costume in the world, like stereotypes, like yes, yeah, lesbian in a package, yeah, a hundred percent. And so that's what was hilarious to me about it. But anyway, so this woman was like having us at her home, me and my mom, because I agreed to go, and she's telling us about how her son was gay but then went through whatever with Jonah Mm -hmm. and now he's better, you know, and it's like, but I'm a cheerleader. Like, you know, it has the same kind of flavor as that. And then they teamed up, they Jonah teamed up with this therapist on the Upper West Side. I don't remember her name, but she was practicing, I guess, off license because the DSM by that point for sure did not classify homosexuality as a mental disorder because that was a change in the DSM. And so a therapist who's doing conversion therapy is like necessarily breaking therapy law, like internally. But anyway, she had this community that was like sending people to her. And I remember me, my dad, my mom, and my brother at the time all went to this therapist. And I don't, remember much of what happened but like we only went how long was this program and how long were you and then at what point were you just like guys yeah what are we we doing here I think I mean I like I mean it sounds also very traumatic I'm not trying to make light of it because oh no no no. it's I, I don't know that I like it wasn't not traumatic and I appreciate your sensitivity but I also think just to be real about it like it doesn't strike me as specifically traumatic like to me that moment of going to that therapist it was kind of like okay I guess we'll do this and we just like weren't into it and my family like for better or worse and I think in this case it was for better sometimes didn't have the follow through of like, we're gonna go to this program to the end, Mm -hmm. you know, kind of thing. And so if something was like a little hard, sometimes 
the plans would fall through. It's like me as and a soccer was, mom. I'm like, I, you know, I did the snacks once. And then guys, like, what are we doing with all this stuff here? I overcommitted. But no, I'm no, make, totally. I'm obviously making it very light of a very difficult. No, but I actually, I was thinking the same thing. I was like, you know, sometimes like with sports, like I wished that my parents sometimes had more of a mind of like, we're going to keep going. And I'm a very intense person, I would say, like in terms of like, Stand up is something that I've like devoted my life to and I do it all the time. And in a way, sometimes when I mean, to the extent that whatever we do later in life is like making up for past traumas and things we might regret from childhood, which, you know, I don't think that explains everything, but I do think it explains a lot of people's behavior at times. And I think my kind of commitment to doing my work in the way that I do is in response to like, I wish I was able to play tennis every single day when I was seven. And so I don't think it's a bad analogy at all. As I'm hearing you talk about it, I can imagine that obviously eventually you and your brother have had, I'm assuming, had conversations with your parents. Have you had conversations that have gone well later in life? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, my wife is a rabbi, which is relevant because one joke that I have on stage that I tell is, you know, when I first came out, my parents were really upset about it. And they were like, what are we going to tell everyone at synagogue if you're a lesbian? (laughs) Then I started dating a rabbi. They're like, hold on, we're proud. You know, so and and that's like kind dream. of. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Right. Exactly. Like, it's like, well, she's dating a rabbi, yeah. <laughs> you know, but it's not not true, you know, and, and the same with my brother, like my brother, you know, has had wonderful relationships with women whom my parents have really loved. And I think that ultimately they came around through time and therapy and like just getting over it to, I think, wanting their children to be happy. You know, I mean, my dad is no longer alive, but like certainly, you know, when I was older and he was older and towards the end of his life, not only the very end of his life, but also before he was like, I just want you to be happy, you know, and that's something that they really did say out loud and I think was more difficult to get to when we respectively, me and my brother, first came out because I think it was really shocking for them. And also I think that they were preoccupied, you know, with like, what did we do wrong? How is this our fault? We need to like rectify this. It really is interesting the older that we all get, how much you recognize that like moments that is becomes your trauma from your childhood is actually tied into maybe something yeah. that your parents experience that their parents like the generational trauma is very very real yeah and, and when you have a realization of that because you find yourself an adult who are facing sudden circumstances or things or you start to see a story in a different way where you're not just seeing it from the child's perspective when you were a child but you now suddenly see it from your parents perspective a little bit like it's just it's really wild when that shifts. But I wonder, you know, I'm sure that you've had so many conversations and you had so many conversations with your parents as well as with your brother, with your parents, where you felt like you were just like 
blowing their minds and they've had to like really relearn, you know, how they see the world or a new language. But I imagine just going back to kind of where we started in this conversation where this like young generation right now, like, do you feel sometimes where you where you're just like, man, I'm just some boring lesbian. Like I was so cool and evolved. And then now I feel like (laughs) trying to like, have you found yourself in positions where you're trying to like keep up with this younger generation and re-expanding your vocabulary? A hundred percent. I mean, yeah, I have found that a hundred percent because I do stand-up comedy and stand-up comedy is, you know, I mean, it, it attracts people from all walks of life and all ages, but a lot of stand-up comedians are young people, right? Because like when people start and like, you know, if they start and they get some heat on them, then like that's when you hear about them. They, they're like, you know, 24 years old, sometimes 19 years old. And those are people who I work with yeah. as peers. Right. And so I often find myself as that person who I'm like, my God, you know, like and, and it's like I think about like what the shocking thing is going to be in however many years. And it's like, you know, I just imagine somebody somebody's kid being like, I'm a Republican. (laughs) Like I'm right. Like, you know, so conservative, like more conservative than like my dad or whatever. The other thing I wanted to say, because you're absolutely right, is that there was a part in my parents' reaction, which I should have mentioned before, which is they were scared for me because of that generational trauma that you were talking about. I think that's very real. And I think that as I've come to understand them more and forgive them, you know, that's something like they really believed, whether it was from those AIDS and HIV messages on television or otherwise, because those were like, that was like all over, you know, when I was a kid. I mean, you're watching television at the time you had to watch commercials and those were the commercials. It was like, you know, the and one also, about remember, this is your brain like on a, drugs. And again, and then, this is all bullshit. But there was a point in time where peri- people thought you could sit on a toilet seat and catch AIDS. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yes. And then there was, yes, there was that. And then there was a new commercial because I remember when the commercial came out about how that wasn't true. And so actually because of that, so I remember the one that's like, hey, you can't get it from a toilet seat. I remember that messaging and I was like, got it. And so I asked my science teacher because she happened to be my best friend's mom who worked at our school. And like, I went to Orthodox day school. So like, they're not talking about no sex, let alone gay sex at Orthodox day school, you know, Jewish Orthodox day school. But I knew that I could ask my friend's mom, like, and and I could trust that she would get that I was just scared and really just asking for information. So I asked her after class, I was like, hey, can you, do you know why gay people get HIV and AIDS? Like, because it seems like they're saying that everyone has it. And she explained to me very clinically, you know, she was like, it has nothing to do with being gay. It has to do with like a transfer of fluids. And if you have anal sex, which sometimes gay people have, then it can be true if they're not wearing protection, that there's a higher risk of tearing, which means that there might be blood, which mixed with semen. And it was like, so like, oh, thank you. Right. And so it it demystified this thing. And it's like that woman died 
actually, the day that I decided to retire from my law professor job, which it, it's it is a coincidence, but I mention it because like she really does hold a significant place in my life. Not and and like something that I connect those two things being true with is like no one at in my life, my parents or anyone at school would have been able to like hear me have that anxiety and just like meet it with like information that was helpful without judgment, without like, why are you asking that or anything like that? And she could. And so she died that it happened to be the day that I announced my retirement for like other reasons. But at her, not her funeral, but like at at some of the shivas following her funeral, there was a part of me that was like, I do have like a very lovely sentimental story to share. But like, obviously, the setting of like other (laughs) Orthodox Jews sitting around mourning this woman and I'm going to get up and be like, so she taught me about (laughs) gay sex. Right. But the thing is, the truth of it was that it was like an extremely monumental moment because it allowed me to like breathe at least for a time, a sigh of relief that like yeah. I wasn't being punished, yes. nor was anyone for being gay. Right. Mm-hmm. And that there could be some science that unfortunately affected people in a specific way. And at the time, you know, because this is like Angels in America. Right. The band played on like these are the time from from this, you know, this time period, those stories. And so what it seemed like was, you know, they called it a gay cancer. And it the the, the real, like, way of yeah. thinking about it was yeah. prevalent. I mean, it was deep. And she really demystified it for me. But I, I did not. I've shared with her daughter, who con- continues to be my best friend, this story. And she gets, like, that's very sweet. But also, like, it would not have been the kind of thing that, like, all the rabbis who were at their <laughs> house for Shiva would have wanted to hear and understood I mean, as a sweet really, story. It is interesting as an adult to recognize how impactful when you realize it, it, when you were a child, when someone just told you the truth, you know, because usually yes. when someone doesn't want to tell you the truth, it's met with shame, which is really root, rooted in fear. You know, you can kind of like backtrack those emotions. Yeah. But when you're a kid, you want to feel safe and you just want to know that like someone has an understanding. And usually when someone does understand and they tell you the truth, you go, like oh then this is a safe place no one is scared like this isn't a scary thing but when it's when you ask a question and it's met with like you know like just either quiet or shame or why would you do suddenly Mm -hmm. that uncertainty of what the answer could be of course it's just going to of course bring up so much fear I think about just that like anytime my my daughter, I mean, my I have a younger one who's almost three, so she doesn't ask many questions except where are the goldfish. But my seven year old <laughs> and where, and where are, are they? Are they? <laughs> but like, <laughs> you know, you know, like I don't how old are your yeah. how, do you have one kid, two kids? Yes, we have a daughter who's 11 weeks old. <gasps> Congratulations. OK, so she's not Thank asking you. you any questions, but all of a sudden right. you'll find one day, you know, you'll yeah. read a book and then the book will be like and then there was war mm-hmm. and then your daughter will yeah. be like, what's war? And then you're like, right. Well, and then ah. and then you're and they're like, oh, well, there's no more wars now. And you're like, well, and then you're like, why right. am I talking about Putin at 10 o'clock at night huh? with a five year old? Like, what are we doing uh-huh. here? What's happening? Yeah, but, totally. but it is really interesting navigating parenting and or just any sort of 
parental discussions and wanting to like honor, you know, these little kids with truth, while also realizing so much of like the hesitation comes from the fear within ourselves to just want to protect them, but also do the right thing and not and not having an understanding of what we understand is also a scary thing as an adult. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think about that a lot with a lot of stuff and specifically like in terms of, you know, a super bloom opportunity. So I recently released an album that was about the stillbirth of my wife's and my first daughter, Leo Pearl. And and I recorded it on the one year anniversary of that stillbirth, basically because I wanted to commemorate and honor the day and her memory, mm-hmm. knowing that the anniversary was going to come and just sort of being like, OK, well, that's going to be a tough day. And so is there a way of like sanctifying it, I guess, would be the right word Mm -hmm. with something that's creative. And I think about and so, you know, that album exists and it's called A Very Particular Experience and it's available everywhere. And it's been featured in The New York Times. And like it's you know, it's it's been a great thing, even though what prompted it was this like terrible, I mean, to say the least, like just the worst worst, moment. Yeah. Now we have Eloise, our daughter, who doesn't know Leo, for whom she is named, doesn't, you know, was brought into this world. And like, we want her to understand that there was Leo. But like, that's a question that I have, because, you know, as I think about Karen, my wife's pregnancy, in a way, there are moments that I could explain in quotes what happened, but also there's a lot that's unexplained. And it's kind of like everything was going fine until it wasn't, you know, and that's very true. And so to what extent and this I don't mean this as a question that I know how to answer exactly, but like to what extent am I able to convey to my child without freaking her out that sometimes these terrible things happen, right? Yes. I, I, I've had to have conversations like this with my yeah. with yeah. my kids because they'll ask questions about maybe people that we know or family members. Yeah. And, and it's really, that's the hardest thing is when a child just asks you why and when yeah. there's really no, and it's the same question that you have. I also think that it's interesting you know, go going back to like generational things like this, you know, miscarriage and stillbirth was not something that was really talked about openly, mm-hmm. I think, by families or anyone who gives, you know, birth, you know, uterus owning people. Have not, that was not something that yeah. was like commonplace conversation. You know, it's not to say that it didn't happen. Like, it's not to say that the mm-hmm. rates have changed of as to like right. this happening. But I do feel Did you feel within the experience, were you able to find you and your wife able to find a community of people who were able to I mean, I'm sure obviously you have like friends, family, congregation, but but still people who understood what you had been through. Yeah, well, I think that that's uh, a real asset from talking about it is that you're able to find community because, you know, I I mean, I wouldn't have brought it to stage if my wife was not like extremely supportive of my doing that. And because my wife is a rabbi, like 
both of us process in this different but similar way of like, okay, how does this turn into a speech, basically, Mm -hmm. right? Like, because that's kind of the currency of what we both do. And so she had a, she gave her Yom Kippur sermon, which is like, you know, a big high holy day sermon to the congregation about the experience. And then, you know, basically like when we were in the hospital around the time of the stillbirth, I don't know, a funny thing would happen. We would laugh and then another one and then another one. And I was like, I guess I should write these down. Like, this is usually what I do when funny things happen. And they were legitimately funny was the thing. And it's like they weren't distasteful. It was like, you know, I'm sorry, but it's funny when the guy who has to unclog your toilet in your room in labor and delivery after you had a stillbirth with a plunger in his hand is like, congratulations. And it's like, yeah, yeah, it's a faux pas, but like, it's not not funny. Yeah. Right. And so, you know, and there were there were like moments like that, like also like there was a nurse who very well-meaning, I have to believe, but was like talking about our daughter, Leo, and was like, she's so perfect. She's really just the most perfect child, which is like obviously meant as a nice thing. But like she was so convincing that at one point I'm like, should we tell her (laughs) that? Like, because I'm like, does I don't any, get does it. she like, know? Does she <laughs> right, just reading exactly. a chart? Like, yeah. what's happening? Yeah, like, like to a point where I'm like, what? Like, and and there were moments like that, just c- complete absurdity. That you know, it's almost like you had to laugh mm-hmm. to keep from crying, and we did. And the thing is that you know, my wife, her job isn't to be funny in the same way that mine is, but she's funny. Like in the sense, she has a sense of humor, right? And so we both laughed and we have always connected through laughter. And the fact that we connected through laughter in the moment of this terrible tragedy was the thing I feel like that saved us, you know, because I don't know, like it was really, really hard. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we went to a bereavement group. At the time, it was on Zoom, even though it was people from our area. So we've since gotten to know them in person. But at the time, we knew them on Zoom. And like, you know, we kind of ended up connecting with the people from the group the most who, not that they thought what happened was funny, but that we were able to connect with in a humorous way about other stuff. Right. And so that was kind of like, those were the little seedlings that really gave me the courage to make the theme of the album the stillbirth itself, even though it was a comedy album. Mm-hmm. I was like, okay, well, this is this is the job that I'm undertaking because I feel it's important. And also I want to honor our daughter and also honor the way we got through this moment, which was through laughing. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. 
They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Well, because it's not just the it's it's like the business of death, you know, the business of grief. Yeah. It's, you know, it's like in any, you know, just to simplify it down to like a like a traditional television show or a movie that shows like a funeral. You see people crying, right. you see people sad, but there's also like you, you got to get gas in the car to get from point A to point B and then you got to find your seat and then like, you know, and then you got to do small talk and you might have spinach in your teeth at the wake, you know, it's like it's all those other th- little things. And that's like also that's life, you know, it's like it doesn't end just laying in a ball on the ground crying. You eventually do raise up whether it's someone picking you up or you starting to stand up and it's those are the moments too that tie you to the next you know that keep you going and that it's hopefully contains an element of laughter but then and and grief looks different for everyone and so to be able to bring people in and say it can also look like this is very powerful totally i mean the thing that i kept thinking about too is that like I mean, I I wanted our daughter, Leo, to have been born alive, obviously. And when I was thinking about the moments that she wouldn't get to experience, laughter was like the first on the list that I'm like, that's so sad. We will never see her smile. We'll never see her laugh. We'll never hear her laugh. And it's like, yeah, and cry and et cetera, et cetera. But like, I think that laughter is evidence of life, mm. you know? And so really like the the arc of what I put together in the album is about grieving our daughter Leo and stillbirth and pregnancy loss. There's a lot about that. So like a trigger warning if anyone's listening for sure to the album. And also like We had lost, my dad had died within the past few years. And one of the things, and also our cat Mona. And so I use those examples, not, they're not just examples, but like in terms of the writing of the hour that I recorded, those griefs were included in jokes and stories that are on that hour because the way that I grieved our cat Mona 
you know, who died at 15 years old and my dad who died at 73 of heart disease that he had had for many years. Like neither of those is like good. And also when I remember my dad and even when I remember my cat, I remember elements of their personality. I remember elements of them as a living family member who I was close to. And then there's the loss of our daughter, Leo, who it was such a devastating loss. But what was also true about it was how confusing it was because I never knew her. Like she never lived, but she did exist. And so I think that's that part of the reason that you know, in my opinion, I've read it also, but like, I don't mean to say that this is the only way to look at it is like pregnancy loss is super devastating. And it's also not talked about as much as it could be that I think would be helpful for people. But also it's very confusing because what you don't miss the person in the way that you, that anything about grief would allow you to process through. And so it's almost like this grief of hope. You know, one of the first thoughts I had, and it wasn't as a comedian, it was just as a person, when I put together what was happening, like right when my wife delivered in triage, was like, am I am I ever going to laugh again? Yeah. Like literally, like how, how am I ever going to do that again? And that was really like the inspiration for wanting to turn it you know, that pain into art because I was like, okay, well, this happened to me and this is how I process things. So to the extent I believe that like I am a unique vessel through which an expression comes through in this world, I think I have to do this, you know, because that's the way that I'm going to process it anyway. So I can either do that and not share it or do that and share it. And I felt that there was real utility in sharing it because I would have wanted to hear somebody going through that in that moment or shortly thereafter. Yeah. And hearing you speak, it's like I feel like the confusing part about pregnancy loss is you have this like all this love that's like built up and it just like cracks you open and and you can yep. be just like cracked open and all of a sudden you're like it's like when the Grinch's heart just grows at the you know what I mean yeah. and it gets yeah. bigger and you have all this love and then suddenly when you're like wait but where am I supposed to put it now where does it go yep. that's I think such a like physical confusing part is like I think so yeah I'm sure you've had a wonderful reception to people reaching out. And have you have you had people reach out and really say, express their gratitude for feeling like they had got understanding through of their experience based off of you being willing to share yours? Yeah, I have. And that's really fantastic. I mean, I'm sorry for those people's losses. Like it's it's increased my empathy more than anything ever has. And that's something that. I would say I'm always trying to grow, you know, is like, I don't know, because it's like those are the blind spots that we have as humans is like taking for granted something that somebody else doesn't have or that somebody's gone through and you're not, you know, seeing how you're privileged or whatever. And so even now, like that I'm talking on stage about having a child, I have in my mind, I'm like, what about the people who can't have kids? Mm. Like it's, it's kind of like 
you know, there's a lot of talk in comedy that people sometimes are like, well, I want to say whatever I want. And it's like, right, you can. And also like then there's the element of like, yeah, but I also want to acknowledge not that I want to dwell in the past because it's not it. It's like, I just want to acknowledge that like, yeah, we're really happy that we have our daughter and also we're, we hold space for our daughter, you know? I like hearing, I like, and also I'm like my mantra of late as of lately has just been both can be true. And I yeah. feel like also, and also is a like very lovely yeah. version of that. Oh, thanks for pulling that out because I I wasn't intending it as like a phrase in that way, but I think you're absolutely right. My wife says a similar thing, like you can have both or or you know, it can be both, I think is mm-hmm. maybe the way she says it, but I I think yeah, all of that is so true that there really are multitudes of experience and any one experience doesn't detract from another experience. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, but anyway, I, I do believe that, I mean, there's no way, I don't know. It's like, I'm not saying I'm grateful that Leo was stillborn because it's just not true to the extent that I've learned from the experience and to the extent that it was this, you know, really terrible season that, begat, you know, a harvest Mm -hmm. or whatever. I think that understanding the loss of a child has opened me up to loving a child, you know, Mm -hmm. like more than I might have been. I mean, the other thing too is like, I always was someone who like my my fear of loss was so inextricably connected to love. You know, I think that there's generational trauma as the reason for that or whatever. But like, I grew up in a family that said, I love you and says, I love you a lot, like a lot, a lot, like 15 times on the phone, you know, you're leaving to CVS for five minutes. I love you, you know, whatever. And at some point I realized, I'm like, I think what we're saying is please don't die. (laughs) And when I held Leo our stillborn daughter, one of the things I realized was that this is the only person I think whom I have loved whose death I didn't fear because when I met her, she was already dead, which is a kind of mind reshaping Mm -hmm. phenomenon to take in. And I, I don't think that because I experienced that moment that my fear of loss has then, then you know, been unextricated or whatever, like, you know, extricated, I guess, would be the word from my, you know, that love and fear don't always go together for me because I, I still think they do. But like, I think that experience of like realizing that has helped me to like not be run by my fear of other people dying all the time. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, it's a minute by minute process, no, but of like of course, but yeah. when you when you when you know when you've been able to walk through an experience 
Yeah. And especially with someone that you love, like your wife, you know, you've both been able to walk through that experience separately together, the community of people around you separately Mm -hmm. together. It's like it. it, I mean, you're going to be able to find yourself in other experiences where you go, okay, I know I can walk through this. Yeah, totally. I think that's true. I mean, you know, and to bring it back to where we started, I mean, like, there's no one who I want to walk through life with more. And, you know, it's it's like it's so interesting to me that, like, I have all of it. Right. Like, because truly, when I was in the closet, when I was like a gay kid thinking the best I can get is being in an okay heterosexual relationship and maybe having a girlfriend on the side that somehow it was like a secretive thing. Like to think even, even with all the tragedy, right. With all the terrible stuff, it's like, there's no one who I'd rather be with. And I don't know that I needed that test because I think I was like pretty sure to begin with, but you know, it is true. As uh, so, you have an eleven-month-old. You said eleven week. Eleven week old. Oh my gosh, you are in it. Yeah. Oh my goodness. Oh, yeah. Okay, I was like, yeah, eleven weeks. So you have not slept in weeks. <laughs> uh huh. Uh huh. A lot of blankets, a lot of laundry. Everything smells slightly like sweet little vomit, but it's kind of sweet uh-huh. and it's not awful. Yeah. And their just heads smell so yummy, I and know. they just sleep on your chest, and it's so delicious. What is yeah. your favorite thing? that you've experienced as a parent thus far? I mean, like, well, the smiling. Oh, yeah. Like the fact that smiles don't come quick. Right. And like they tease you with the smile. Like it's like (laughs) your kid because I didn't know this, but they fall asleep. And I don't know, I guess all they dream about are like puppies and rainbows. (laughs) That's what it looks like, because, you know, the newborn, like, smiling, (laughs) drifting off. It's like, what are your dreams? Meanwhile, I'm dreaming. And, like, I don't even remember last night I had some. Oh, I I dreamt that I was having a heart attack. (laughs) Like, literally, (laughs) that was my dream from last night. Uh Okay. Meanwhile, like, newborn babies are just like, I don't know what they're remembering. Like, the womb. Which, like, like, man, that pool, that hot tub was real sweet. Right. (laughs) Which also, like, one thing I find so hilarious about the womb is, like, because you know how you you can only put them to bed with, like, these noises of shushing? So much. Okay. Yeah. So, yeah, for anyone listening, I mean, anyone who has a kid, you probably, you know, I imagine know this, but, like, there's, you know, shushing noises and shushing machines. And it's not, like, a relaxing brown or white noise. It's, like, an angry librarian (laughs) from third grade telling you to shut up right now. Right? Like, just And like over and over and over again. And then like we had a thing. We have the shushing machine mm-hmm. that's a standalone whatever. But then I think, you know, it's it's downstairs and you're upstairs and oh my God. Okay. Well, somebody on Spotify finds shushing between me and my wife. Fine. So then you go to Spotify. You find the shushing. Some of the shushing is eight hours. Mm-hmm. Beautiful. Right? Some of it is like two minutes long. Uh, yeah. And then... <laughs> It goes to the next shushing, which I'm like, who needs two and a half minutes of shushing? I need sustained shushing, right? 
And so then, but when we did the two and a half minutes, then it goes, you know, like Spotify goes to like similar tracks. And so it goes from shushing to other similar sounds, which include, but are not limited to vacuum cleaners, <laughs> a hair dryer, like literal noise pollution. Uh-huh. And meanwhile, your newborn is going to be listening to this being like, uh, the relaxing sounds of the womb. <laughs> and like, meanwhile, you're like, I can't sleep. And now I'm having a dream where I have a heart attack and they're shushing. Yeah, Cause I'm doing the, the cause I'm vacuuming. That's why. Yeah. Correct. yeah. Right. <laughs> it's all right. Like exactly. <laughs> So, so, so those, those are not my favorite, but the smiling, it's It's so so good. good. So now she's like actually smiling seemingly on purpose. You know, there, it's still not like I do a funny Mm -hmm. thing. She has a thought and laughs about it. We're not, you know, I think that's maybe in like a couple weeks or whatever it might be, hopefully, but she's at the point where she's smiling like for longer Mm -hmm. and while conscious Mm -hmm. and like, I mean, the thing that's amazing is, and I don't know if your kids did this, but like when it's, when she's about to get up, right. You look in the bassinet and it's just the cutest smile you've ever seen in your life. And you're like, okay, I'm happy to be alive as well because their energy is like a new day. (laughs) And you're like another day. And so it's but then you look at them and you're like, you're right. Like, you're absolutely correct. It's beautiful. It's all. Yeah, it really is. Yeah. Yeah. It's all yeah. the things. And also, yep. Yes, um, and also. Well, I have, I could talk to you about parenting and life and uh, lovely generational trauma all day long, but yeah, I don't want to keep it's you. Really uh, it is, it's really lovely to talk to you. It's really lovely to talk to you. So before I do these like five cool down questions, that I definitely want Please. to ask you. But before I do, I also want to know, could you mm-hmm. share with the listeners when, like we've talked about you coming out of the closet, but when did you come out of the comedy closet? Because we didn't even get to, oh. you worked in law, you were a law professor. And yep. then eventually, like how old were you? When did you start? comedy 33 so jesus year (laughs) and and i'm jewish but you know so was jesus Mm -hmm. and it doesn't take away from the fact that i think it i am always interested when someone says they're 33 because i'm like what magnificent changes are happening in your world right now and so so now i'm 44 and so i've been doing comedy for 10 years and i was doing it like i did it for the first time after i got tenure as a law professor and so that meant I had been a law professor for six years, got tenure, was in my seventh year when I did comedy for the first time. And I did it because somebody who I had a crush on at the time, nothing ever happened. (laughs) I mean, she's great. We're friends. But she was like, do you want to do comedy? And I was like, are you going to be wherever you're asking me to do it? Because if so, then yes. And then I did it and I loved it. And really, that was like, it. it wasn't like I wasn't miserable in what I had been doing. I liked it quite a bit. I was a, a tenured law professor at that time, which like is a sweet gig. But when I did it, I, you know, I was struck by, I mean, the laughs were cool, but it was more about the fact that I could just be honest mm. and talk about stories from my own life. Like I didn't have to like you know, fit the stories into a narrative that was like going to be on the bar exam. Right. And so for me, that was like a pretty huge deal. And then I got the opportunity about a year later to retire because my school was offering buyout packages just coincidentally 
to anyone who had tenure because, I mean, the school's fine now, but I think at the time they were having some like budget moments or whatever it was. And so they were like, you know, we'll give you money because we have to buy you out because you're tenured to leave. And then I chose to leave, even though I think they were surprised because like generally, I mean, I'm not speaking for the school, but like generally a move like that is designed to like get very old tenure yeah, people not, not out of their office. Yeah, not a 33, 32, 33 right. year old. Yes, exactly. Right, right. But I think for being safe, they were like offering it to literally anyone who had tenure. And I, you know, I mean, I kind of had one foot out the door because I loved comedy so much. So I would say the takeaway from that story, in my opinion, is like if you're feeling a pull that's like super like, whoa, in terms of what you might want to do. And then the universe or God or Jesus or whatever you believe in gives you some kind of a sign that's like, hey, this thing that you thought was totally wacky that you never thought you'd be able to do for my life, it was quitting my job that was literally the most secure job anyone could have being tenured. And then this thing happens and it's like, hey, we'll pay you to do this thing you've been playing around with in your mind anyway. I would say take that as the sign. Yeah, I'm very happy yeah. you came out of the comedy closet. Oh, it's thanks, important. Candace. Yes. <laughs> I appreciate you. <laughs> All right. Yeah. Well, five questions before I let you go. Yes. Just sure. first things that pop in your mind. Just a nice little mm -hmm. conversation cool down. Yes. Liz, what is something that you like? Oh, I mean, I like talking to people. Like, I, I used to say this very early on in my comedy, which was, so my mom wasn't really like a story reader to me before bed. Or she would try sometimes. And I was like, mommy, can we just talk? And when I first started doing comedy, I was like, I think the best case scenario is that I, through doing comedy, can affect the way that I would feel as a child when my mom and I would talk before bed. Yeah. I love that. What's something that you know? I know. Let's see. I mean, I know that I'm in my house. Well, what do I know? I know that there is something out there that's running all of this. I don't know what it is. <laughs> I don't know. Like, that's the thing that I'm most excited about. I'm not excited to die. However, whenever that happens, I hope it's in a long time, not really for my sake, but like more for my family. Mm -hmm. I think they'd be upset. I, I can't wait to like have the, you know, fireside chat with God or whomever just being like, hey, so like, was that a sign when I got the buyout? Like, just because I spent did I so get much it? time. Did I get it? Yeah. Right. Did I get people it? Pleaser. Yeah. Did I get it? Did I do, yeah. the, did I do a good job? That's such, that's such an interesting connection. And you're so right, Candace, because it's like, it's like getting an A plus yeah. in life as though God, God or like, is missed another oh one, God. missed right. another one. Because you thought you were getting all of them right. Yeah. <laughs> oh, my. Okay. What's something that you hate? Hate. I hate. Okay. Do you have a cat? No. Great. Okay. Um. The next follow-up question would have been, if you said yes, does your cat go outside? Okay. Uh -huh. And I know I'm going to split some sides of a room here. <laughs> but, like, I'm saying this as a woman who lives in the suburbs and I see cats walking around mm -hmm. all the time 
and I'm worried sick for these cats because then I take a walk and I see the the flyers. Hey, I lost my cat. I'm on the boards on Facebook. Lost cat, lost cat. I'm like, what do you people? And then the thing is, if the people were indoor cat people and something happened, uh, God forbid, but I get it. But a lot of these people are like, what? The cat's a wild animal. And it's like your cat <laughs> a is a pillow <laughs> with a face and like keep it inside. It's not so a tiger. I really hate. It's not a lion. No. It's not. <laughs> it's like he he knows the way home. I'm like, I don't know the way home. Like I've lost 90% of my life. Meanwhile, this cat, first of all, I mean, I don't think my cats would do very well outside. And so that's part of where this comes from. Maybe there's a blind spot in my logic. I'll I'll accept it. But again, I don't have emotional capacity anymore to worry for all of the cats that I see in my neighborhood. It's upsetting and I wish it would stop. What's something that you love? Oh, I love my family. Oh, I know. I, I forgot. You have to take that off the list. Like oh. love your family and like what's something that you love for you? Well, I love tennis. Oh. Tennis was the theme for my bat mitzvah. And like I used to play yes. tennis a lot when I was a kid. And now, you know, it's like it's like adult activities are harder to like make happen. I feel mm -hmm. like like there's a whole thing with it, I guess. Um, are you a pickleball person now? You know, I haven't played yet. Do you play? No. So I just played at a bachelorette party oh. for the first was time. It was, I mean, we were, we were like very, we're a very competitive bunch and there were like 16 sure. of us and it was my first time yeah. ever, but I teamed up with wow. my gal who was a tennis player and she uh -huh. was like, this is completely different. Like it was a completely yeah. different sport. We did not succeed in the tournament very well, but you know, well, we got to go jump in the I mean, pool earlier than everyone else and enjoy another margarita. For sure. So, you know, we oh, won, well, that's we won nice. depending on what side yeah. you looked at it, but yes. Yeah. Yeah. I think that there, that is winning, but also, I mean, people love pickleball. I have a lot of friends who are very into pickleball and I've wanted to play. I mean, I, I watch a lot of tennis and I love watching tennis. Like I love like get me into you know, like my wife and I do it together, actually, that like we'll watch the whole tournament and whatever. So, yeah. And and I, you know, I do love playing. Yeah. Also. Yeah. That, OK. Yeah. That's a good one. And then last Thank but you. not least, Liz. Yes. What is a quirky little fact about you? Oh, yeah. Well, I can speak backwards fluently. What do you mean? Word by word and phonetically. So like, what do you mean? Tau ud ui nim. So each word, like whenever I see a word, I flip it in my brain to backwards. Zadarao cab is backwards and can say it that way. It is a skill that is not a skill. I'm like, did you practice it? Did you discover this one no, day? It was it was something that I discovered like when I was in elementary school and like I uh, another friend also could. So we would talk in backwards and like write notes to each other in backwards. And so it was just kind of like, OK, well, I guess your brain works this way. Like, congratulations. <laughs> <laughs> that is amazing. Liz, thank you so much. Yeah, as much as I'd like to go backwards and just redo this entire conversation, right? it's time to word go forward. <laughs> Thank you so much for your time. Thank you. A Super Bloom podcast is hosted by me, Candace King, produced by Melissa DeMonts and Diamond Imprint Productions, edited by Diane Kang, post-production sound by Coco Lawrence, and advertising partnership with ACAST. <laughs>